0: Hey everybody, welcome back to Bikes and Big Ideas on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from our home here in the Gunnison Valley of Colorado, and you should start making plans to come ride our vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, And we're gonna be riding bikes soon in Gunnison. That's where it starts and it's coming fast. So I'm excited. Okay, our guest today is Rami Mataye, who I'm sure that most of you know from his incredible YouTube channel, where you can watch Rami do some pretty wild things on a bike. So we'll include a link to the show notes in this episode just so long as you promise me that you'll go check out what this guy gets up to if you haven't already seen it. Now, in one of his videos, Raimi describes himself as someone who is just trying to be as responsible as he can while doing stupid stuff. And so, of course, I wanted to talk to him about his approach to riding super steep techie lines, aka stupid stuff, what it is that allows him to get comfortable in these stupid scenarios. And we also talk about his background and rampage and hip hop and Lady Gaga and a whole lot more. This is a really fun one. And as you will see, Raimi is a really smart and really thoughtful guy who likes to do stupid stuff. And so let's just go ahead and get right to it. Well, Ramey, How are you today
1: and where are you today? Thanks. So I'm good and I'm located in Squamish, BC, which is, you know, an hour north of Vancouver and 40 minutes south of Whistler.
0: Nice. Yeah. We recently had on Bikes and Big Ideas somebody that you've been spending a decent amount of time with. So apparently, Bikes and Big Ideas is just becoming like we just interview people, yeah, in your circles. Yeah.
1: So, Johan told me you had a, a good chat with him, and he actually uh, introduced me to you guys. So, thanks to him.
0: Have you been out riding with him recently?
1: Well, actually, yesterday we were filming a video that uh, will come out, I guess, in the next couple of weeks. And uh, Johan decided to do um, a bit of freestyle. He had a pretty gnarly crash. So, he's, he's, complete, he's completely fine, but uh, yeah, that was, that was pretty gnarly
0: but this was his fault. This is not, you were not goading him into do <laughs> Okay. Maybe you were,
1: you now, were goading him. He had He had done the jump before, but it's a really sketchy gap. Uh, it's, it's dangerous. It's so cold. And what happened is that we were filming. So, you know, when we film like, you know, setting up the GoPros, like, you know, the talking part, me doing it. And I've done, I've done the drops like countless of time. Like we're talking like 100 times for some reason. I jumped it twice yesterday and it, di- it didn't feel right. First time, like I didn't tie my helmet properly and we also like spent 30 minutes, n- no riding before doing it. So it's getting a bit cold, not enough food. I was getting like hungry, tired and, but you know, we're filming. It's part of our job. And uh, so I did it. But not not as good as I normally do it. I wasn't like super precise. I felt like my body was you know, my timing was off. So I still did it fine, but not and Johan is used to see me doing it like stuff really precisely. And I guess that kind of like dropped that confidence a little bit. And he also stayed like, you know, 30, 45 minutes without riding. Two people came by, they were riding the trail. And they were a bit; they were not on the way. But you know, it it added like some pressure. And uh, Johan went; uh, he just went too fast, and uh, so he exploded at the bottom. Fortunately, it was fine, but uh, that was not him. I felt a bit responsible. I know Johan normally would just go for it, but I think I should have seen it. I could tell he was getting nervous; he was no longer getting confident. We had a good start. Then he scared himself once, then didn't try it again. And I could I could tell from just looking at him he was he was not into it anymore. And after crashing, he told me like he was just gonna cut it. Like he, he didn't feel it, but still went for it.
0: This reminds me so much of the like when to say something, when to not say something. You know, we've been having a whole lot of conversations this year, this winter, about communicating in the backcountry, especially when like ski touring in avalanche terrain. Right. And it's always that somebody's in the back, maybe not feeling so good about where a group might be traveling. And like, you know, it's like, dude, speak up if, if something feels off. And I, this is very much reminds me of what you're kind of saying. And I, I guess this would be a question for you when you're filming in general, do you have that sense of like you're always wanting fellow riders to be communicating like i'm just not feeling it maybe today or that felt a little off to me how do you handle that or is it just day by day
1: like i think i'm really good with that i don't let myself influence by other riders if i'm not feeling it i'm not doing it and also i'm really scared of other people getting injured especially when i'm here you know, because you don't want to see a friend getting hurt, especially you know if it's a bad fall and you feel responsible. One of my friends is is a really good rider, but even today, like I was riding with, you know, kind of the guy who used to ride in France that moved to Canada before me and really made me come to Canada. He's he's a super talented guy, but doesn't ride nearly as much as he used to, and um, you know I there is a track and there's that little jump. He's never done it. It's way below his capacities, you know, but I still told him like, stop, look at it. Even though I know he can just do it. But even though now I saw him like looking at it and be like, okay, what's the speed like? And it kind of like sounded a bit nervous. And in my head, I'm like, what about if if he makes a mistake? You know, he can, I would never bring someone to a jump, a line where I believe they can't do it, so I believe my friend could do it, but you're like, what about if he makes a mistake? Yeah. He goes over the bar, paralyzes himself, so that's um, something I would always think of.
0: How often, or how typical would you say that is when you're out filming do you often find like a lot of the times, you know, you, you've you got film folks set up and they, you know, it's a bit of an attitude or you're with other writers and it's like, we don't really care. No one's really checking in. Like your job is to send this. You know what I mean? Versus like how frequently do you feel like the communication is good and everybody's trying to get like, you cool, you cool, you feeling all right.
1: You know what I mean? Uh, when it's, when it's with me and it's under my rules, like. Safety is number one concern. I always like. I have no problem saying that. Even even riding with Johan, like we went by this winter line that I had ridden, and you know I've I've done it so many times. Conditions were a bit like the super cold. It was slippery, and I told him I was like, me I'm not doing it. And I was like, and Johan, you should not do it. If you go and want to do it, do it, but. I don't believe it's a good idea. We can come back another time and, and do it when the conditions are better. So I've no problem with that. But I know I'm I'm definitely more responsible than other writers when it comes to that.
0: Okay. And so you I'm definitely not asking you to like name names or <laughs> talk about any film shoots, but how often in your career have you been in a situation where you're like, I'm really not feeling it today, but I'm kind of being asked or pushed to go get the shot.
1: Uh, No, no one pushes me because I, I I, like, I manage most of the filming myself and the stuff that I have to do for brands. Like for example, I have a photo shoot coming up. It's not based on the action. You know, I, I don't have to take risk to do a cool picture for for brand like Camelback, or, you know, any of my sponsor, when I push, it's only for me. So I don't feel I don't feel the pressure from the outside. The pressure is coming from me.
0: That seems pretty healthy. I'm not sure it's always been that way, right? In like as a generalization in in the bike industry or in the ski industry, but yeah. so it's it's good to hear you say like, yeah, no, it's you're the one who's dictating. Like, let's go do something heavy today or maybe not today.
1: I feel beca- because I've done so much like gnarly stuff. If I tell someone I'm not doing that today, they, they really respect it.
0: You've kind of earned that, right? Yeah.
1: So now I can, now I can <laughs> chill. <cheat.
0: laughs> fair. All right. Fair. Let's talk a bit about where you grew up and how you got into riding bikes.
1: So I grew up on the French Riviera, not far from from your actually, the sport of downhill racing was getting really popular in like 1995. And that's kind of where the sport was born in terms of racing. And um, so, you know, you'll see that on TV, on the newspaper. I've always wanted to do it. Obviously, the cost was um, a break. Uh, so I wasn't really able to do it until I turned like, you know, 16 years old. And, uh, I started to really ride when I was, you know, when I had a side job and when I had a car. So I really started to ride when I was 18 and yeah, I loved it. I still love it. Obviously, hopefully. And yeah, I, I did a business school as well. So I had four years, like super busy and I was able to ride like, you know, twice a week, but I was like, once I graduate, I really would like to move to Canada just to ride and work, but mostly, mostly to ride. And my idea was to gain professional experience in an English speaking country while mountain biking and, uh, hopefully be able to land a job in correlation with my studies in the bike industry.
0: Man, you were plotting this out. It sounds like at a younger age than I think a lot of. Pro riders are thinking about all that stuff. That's fairly impressive and, and not
1: that common, I would say. I feel most of the pro riders you see want to be pro since the kids and they walk towards it since the youngest age and they get pushed by the parents. You know, like at the end of the day, if you live with mom and dad and they don't support you, you can't be pro. Like oh I mean you you can become pro but later uh when you see 16 year old kid being pro it's because they got parent support because who's taking them to the races who's taking them training who's shuttling them it's super competitive so you can't you can't be good at it without parent support and I didn't have parent support I did have parent support at school so my parents were you know the great parents they really like pushed me To be a really good student but definitely not a mountain biker
0: another part of your story is my understanding is you did have some aspirations at an early age of being a pro athlete but this maybe had more to do with skiing than mountain biking initially is that
1: fair yeah i used to i love skiing i I, I love skiing and i was watching ski videos and skiing seemed more affordable than than mountain biking. But quickly I realized that, you know, the snow is disappearing. Uh it's definitely an issue. So you mean like the the days of good skiing are less and less, especially where I'm from. And my dad I guess he really liked skiing. So it was easier to progress skiing while raises on mountain biking. Because mountain biking, if if no one takes you to a bike park, that's pretty tricky.
0: And so, what kind of skiing were you most into or interested in?
1: Uh, free riding, and still, and, and still, right now, like the stuff I, I watch and what I want to ski is is powder. Powder's all right. It's alright. Yeah.
0: So, like this season, have you been? Doing both. I mean, have you been? I mean, I know you've been skiing some, but have you been skiing quite a bit and riding your bike quite a bit, or what's that ratio looked like?
1: Not enough skiing. <laughs> no, but now like Whistler is so busy, and um, I mean, I could do more ski touring, but you know, with COVID, not not being able to like ride share with people, conditions like the avalanche are, like pretty pretty tricky, and I'm not very knowledgeable about it. I've got like the basic training, but not—I should say—like the proper experience required to to be confident in the backcountry. So I I, de- I depend on more experienced skiers, and so I haven't really done that. I've done like a bit of resorts, but it's, it's super busy. I uh, I really like to ski just like really really good powder, and those days are. Uh, when they happen it's just like it's so busy. It's, it's I don't know how it is not where you live, but it's really, really busy.
0: Yeah, we're we're doing all right here. I think in general C B doesn't get near near the kind of traffic that Whistler does. So you can still uh yeah, you can you can still get out and especially to some of the spots we kind of most like to get into, it's not busy. You should come down and see us sometime.
1: Yeah, I'd love to ski elsewhere than, uh, than Whistler. But I'm, I'm looking forward to do like more, more skiing. It's just that now with video content and, and just so busy. Like YouTube, has, it kills the game.
0: <laughs> Meaning on the bike side of things.
1: On the bike side, it's just so much work.
0: Keep it going.
1: And like, you, you can't slack. You have to be on it all the time. That takes away a lot of ski days. <laughs> so when I, when I retire from biking, I'll, I'll become a ski bum.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, or you'll be running a brand or something. I'm curious to ask when you went to business school, do you have specific thoughts about what kind of role yeah. you might, mu- you might most be interested in moving into in the bike industry?
1: Uh, pro- product manager. Was, you know, brand manager. I didn't have any engineering degree, and like working on the pure conception of the bike didn't really interest me. But I felt like I was good enough of a rider to understand what you know people need, whether they intermediate, good rider, or even pro riders. And I like the marketing aspect, and I like that. It will be the position where you can work with everybody to make a bike people want to ride or a product.
0: And it's that is so interesting, right? Because I mean, we we talk to them all the time. There are some brilliant engineers who maybe it's just not their particular strength to translate some of the ideas, you know, to to the end customer right and so i think someone who's able to one ride really well but to understand you know what's going on even conceptually and then communicate that and translate that effectively to an end consumer it's always just interesting how we need people who are good at all of these different things and it's just often not one person who happens to be good at all of those things right so there's room for a lot of different roles
1: i think you need people from the two ends of the spectrum, and someone in the middle to connect them, and that's you know the same for any business, any idea, any any job really. Let's talk a bit about
0: when you were first showing up to the Whistler area, and you started putting out some bike park edits. Talk to me a little bit about when I just say that, what comes to mind. Describe that time for you as somebody in a new spot.
1: Yeah, so actually the guy I was riding today, my buddy Sylvain, which I used to ride with in France from twenty ten to twenty twelve. He moved to to Whistler. To, to Vancouver, sorry. Back in France we we had exactly the same level on a bike. We were going the same speed. There was nothing I could do that he could not, and vice versa. And, um, so when I, I basically met him in Vancouver and we, we lived together in Whistler. Uh, he was coming just for the weekends and me, I was there, uh, all week and, uh, he was kind of my reference, you know, he knew all the speed for the jump, he knew all the lines cause he'd been there, he'd been there before. And, uh, he's the one that gave me the reference of this is a Nali line that only one person or two person has done. This is, you know, um, Kenny Smith's line. This is, you know, Ian Morrison's line. So all those guys, and he kind of gave me a reference and he was like, okay, this is super Nali and this is, you know, this is gnarly. If you can do that, that's really impressive. So then I started writing and I paid extra attention to those lines. And, uh, after, after a little bit, I realized that I could do, I could do all of them. And that's when I tried connect with a filmer and be like, look, you know, I don't have any sponsor. I don't have anyone, but I write good enough that I'm sure people are going to like uh, a video. And so that's how I did two videos, but I was not expecting, uh, you know, the outcome. Like, when they when they when they launch, like people lost their mind. And I'm I'm very, very, very grateful for you know for the feedback on the video and you know, people loving it because that's that gave me the life that that I have now.
0: It's funny hearing you talk about that, like it and so please I don't wanna put words in your mouth, but it sounds a bit like showing up in Whistler is when you actually started to figure out a bit more kind of where you were situated in terms of other riders and the rest, like, you know, kind of as we try to figure out like how good of a writer am I or how good at math am I or something, right? Or good at chess. It's like, well, in a way you don't know till you start playing some really good chess players or riding some pretty gnarly lines. And then you're like, oh, okay, I guess I'm... Is that right? Did it feel like that a little
1: bit? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, definitely. You know, I see the gaps, and when you see the top writers not doing them, and then also some some writers being like, this is crazy. You're like, (laughs) okay. All right, then. I'm onto something.
0: (laughs) I think you're onto something, yeah. So did you have someone... Was it a writer or was it a film that played a bit of a role in terms of, I don't know, inspiring your own writing style or was this just, this is all just natural?
1: No, I guess no, I don't. Well, obviously I look up to, you know, any talented writer out there and I recognize, you know, and when people are really good at what they do, but I don't think I've, I don't think I've, copied or being inspired by one particular writer. I mean, I, I love the writing style of, you know, one or another writer, but I can't, you can't copy. You can't copy. Cause it's like, if it doesn't come natural to you, it, it's, not, I mean, you, you, you can't take the style of someone else. It's not like, it's not like you want an haircut and you see a guy in the street, you're like, this is cool. And you get the same one. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. If your body doesn't react and doesn't flow a certain way, you can learn technique, but I don't think you can learn a particular style. And I ride, actually, I looked at a video of me from before going to Whistler and I have the exact same style and I have the same characteristic on the bike. So it has not really changed. Like, obviously I'm more confident, but I've always been, you know, calculated and, and precise and smooth. I think it's always been like my strength and, um, it's just, no one noticed me in France because the only format was racing and I wasn't very competitive. I wasn't fast. Like I could not hold on to the bike, but I think anyone that that would see me on the side of the track would recognize that, you know, I had a good riding technique and that was smooth. You know, I was, I was never the fastest, but I had a good technique and I was precise. And And I think that's just what I carried on. I just got more confidence uh, so I can do you know earlierlier line and faster line and bigger gaps. But the technique and the style has been has been basically the same.
0: Calculated, precise, and smooth. That's like the opposite of how I would describe my own writing style. <laughs> but it's, so I'm kind of depressed about that because that sounds, yeah, if you had three words to use, that that you could legitimately use to sum up a riding style, that's pretty good.
1: Well the the basically the same as well, because you can be smooth if you're not precise. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah. I guess you could be smooth if you weren't calculated. I don't know. Can you?
1: I mean, maybe, yeah. Uh, calculated is more into like my 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 approach. Yeah. You know, like the way, maybe the reason why I'm precise and smooth is because I'm so calculated. So I don't make that much mistake. But when I do make a mistake, I really make mistake.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you, you wreck and then you think I was not nearly calculated enough.
1: Every crashes I've had was like something I could have avoided because I lost confidence. I, I didn't feel it. I was getting cold and I just went for it. Because I normally never go for it unless I'm, I'm 100% confident. And because I'm not confident at that time, I just like make a mistake.
0: Every single crash could have been avoided. Basically, yeah.
1: every crash I think of, I mean, except there's always a freak crash out there, but like the, the, the big majority is, is something that could have been avoided. But looking back at it, I'm like, I crashed because I'm stupid. I. Forgot to trace this, oh, you know, like something was wrong with my bike, and I still went for it.
0: Calculated. Let's talk about Rampage. This is fun. I like the idea. I just say a word and let you go with it. You know, it's like Whistler Park edits. Like, <laughs> you are you are killing this interview. I don't have to really do anything. Fantastic. Let's talk about your first invitation to Rampage. I think that was in two thousand fifteen. Yeah. How did that come about, and was Rampage something that you had even set your sights on at that point?
1: Yeah, not not at all. I I wanted to get an invite, just to put it on my resume, but I didn't think I belonged there. You know, uh, I I was I was like, you know, I'm not gonna do any tricks. I at the time I was making you know little money. And I was always like financially, I was very conservative. So someone was making the same money than I did would have not even considered the money aspect. But me the way I saw it is like, it's going to cost me, you know, $5,000 to to get there. And to me at the time I was like $5,000, you know, if you go there to do something cool and you can renegotiate contract, That's one thing, but I didn't, I didn't think it was, it was going to be a cool outcome for sponsors. I just thought that it would be like, you know, whatever, like a pretty poor uh, entry and that no one would care about, about what I did and that it's only going to cost me five grand and it's not going to make me a better rider or anything like that. But uh I ended up going and uh that was a pretty good idea.
0: <laughs> you think? Yeah. Four trips to Rampage and a top ten finish.
1: It's a bit more complicated. Three trips and half. One time in twenty seventeen I got US denied entry. So I didn't manage to cross the border. <laughs> but
0: they thought you looked shady.
1: And I was pissed. Like, you don't want to see me angry. And I was angry that day. (laughs) I was really, really mad. Because I got denied for no valid reason. It's just like, I I had one guy that, you know, tried to do that job too well. He, He just didn't let me in. And I didn't have, you know, like, look at me. I'm pretty clean cut. Don't look anything like you know, someone that will do something shady and the guy just didn't let me in. He was like, Oh, you, you're going to work. And I'm like, I get paid by sponsor for, you know, the content I, I do internationally. Me going to rampage is a need to win a prize money, which for that you do not need a work visa. It's exactly like someone going in holidays to Vegas and playing you know like whatever game unless you get paid to attend the event regardless the the results unless you get paid a salary you do not need an athlete visa so like if you're a UFC fighter and you travel to the US and it's like you lose you get 0 you win you make a million you do not need an athlete visa. If the UFC is like, we're going to reimburse you, your flight, your hotel nights and your meals, you do not need a visa. It's written black and white. But the guy I had was like, and if he sees that, uh, that podcast, I hope he, he realized how much of, um, I'm not going to say any word is, but. So basically I didn't make it to Rampage. But uh, I went back six months later and I wrote by myself the same course that I had actually written in twenty sixteen. So I consider that as for Rampage because going by yourself with no medical staff, no one on site except you know, my two friends that were there, and no cell phone coverage is there is I think way more crazy than the actual event.
0: Yeah, I was about to give you credit a few minutes ago for being smart when you were like, I always wanted to get the invite to Rampage, but then maybe not actually ride Rampage. And I was like, nah, smart. But you just kind of ruined that (laughs) by telling us what you just told
1: us. Well, the thing that then I realized the importance of going to Rampage for sponsors, you know, and you can go from you know, leaving paycheck to paycheck to making a good living because of Rampage.
0: So when you went with just a couple friends, I guess, after you were denied admittance into the US, were you filming?
1: I hadn't planned anything. Like it's I just filmed with a GoPro. I paid the guy to just film on the side, you know, like the, the run, but it's super amateur. And and we got the terrible weather I was about to like to go back home without anything and on the last day of the trip, it rained, it rained up to, to seven AM or 8 AM. But that was actually, I wrote one page under the rain. If you look at the video, it was raining and it was super slippery, but that was the only time where the wind was okay. That was the only time of, of the 10 days I spent on there, but that's what earned me. An invite for 2018. And so I went back in 2018, I was actually trying to go in 2020, obviously with COVID didn't happen and I'll never know, but I think I had a pretty decent chance to, to be on the list again, just because of the, of the trail riding I've been doing. Like I have a totally different approach from other riders. And I think people want to see that at Trumpage.
0: That's a perfect segue into my next question, which is, especially thinking of your first Rampage, at this point, you are probably best known for what you're able to do in a bike park, and so the first time getting to the Rampage venue, to what extent are you freaked out or feeling okay or and i i'm thinking right now of you know conversations i've had with claudio calori about you know when he's riding you know his lines at rampage and he's like i'm not i'm not taking the gnarliest lines and i'm still terrified
1: because he's afraid he's afraid of fight.
0: yeah he is yes he is
1: no i i guess i've always been confident with my you know breaking control and body position and my jumping skills. I don't do tricks, but like I have always felt I could have done way an earlier line that I had, but I had poor experience of the terrain. And, um, that's why I really want to go back because I think I became, you know, way more knowledgeable of the dirt of what you can actually do. And you, you need to spend time down there in order to know. And uh the guys are the best at building and writing are the ones who have you know really good experience. And I feel like now I'm at a point where I've got that experience, which I didn't in fifteen, sixteen, seventeen and eighteen. Because the only thing I'd ever ridden was uh, a rampage line. Like I'd never ridden a round site before before fifteen, sixteen and eighteen. Actually, 17, I rode rode a little bit. Well, no, actually, I didn't make it in 17. So 18, sorry. Yeah, no, so like, no. Actually, I've never ridden anything else on a downhill bike around the Rampage site. I've never built any kind of drop and stuff before my four times at Rampage.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, it's different terrain, different dirt, different style.
1: Well, it's like if you've been skiing on groomers and let's say, super light, you know, tree powder, and someone sends you into, you know, riding Alaska. It's just like almost feel like a different sport. Yeah.
0: So we should expect you back at Rampage at some point. This is what I'm hearing you say.
1: No, because, you know, it's really hard to earn a spot, and there's so many talented guys who deserve to go, but you should expect me to go back riding that terrain.
0: All right, we've now talked about bike park edits, we've talked about Rampage, and now you've been putting a lot of time on an enduro bike, and once again, seemingly showing off a different type of riding. I guess I'll just ask the question, I mean, you've already said, it's like, well, I just feel pretty comfortable on a bike in a variety of different settings, but I don't know, was that an intentional Evolution, did that start out as a kind of blueprint you had, or was this just all been kind of an organic development?
1: Uh, no, it's, it's pretty organic. What happened is that the the trail bikes got better and better. So to me, they've been more fun and more fun. And the possibilities of what you can do on on them are, are just becoming better and better. And now to the point where there is some gnarly stuff where I'm like, a trail bike is performs better than a daniel bike almost. In what way?
0: In why performs better?
1: Uh, because um, you know it's a bit lighter, it's a bit shorter, and so you know you're able to move the bike around and it's reliable enough. And also simply you can just access with a daniel bike, you know, if you can pedal, this you miss you miss opportunities, you miss terrain. Like there's a bunch of stuff that you miss, and you're not able to to play on it because you you simply can't get there. And so that's been like super interesting. Also, the bike industry has been shifting to selling a ton of trail bikes and enduro bikes, and simply that's that's where the money is. If you want to be a top free rider right now, or, or a freerider, brands don't sell freeride bikes. They, they don't really sell freeride bikes anymore. And I love it, but you know if you're if you're a company and you got a million dollar of a marketing budget, are you gonna target your riders, which is gonna be 70% well now there's Z bikes? But okay, let's leave apart the e bikes. You got a million dollar and out of every thousand bike you sell ten downhill bikes, ten free ride bikes, and, you know, 800 and your bikes. So that's kind of where I've started to put out more content on the trail bikes.
0: That makes sense. And yeah, it's like these bikes are getting more and more downhill capable and pedaling better and better uphill, which is kind of nuts.
1: Yeah, no, it's pretty crazy. The, the, the bikes have really came a long way when you see the stuff from, you know, five years ago. And now it's, uh, yeah, even, even when, you know, leading brands have been releasing like some NGO five years ago, you look at it now and you're like, it's not even close.
0: I think the progression we're seeing on the bike side of things versus like skis, there's been a good bit of progression, especially in terms of some like. Alpine touring equipment and bindings and and those boots, but skis themselves, I could very very happily tomorrow go ski some of my favorite skis from five years ago or ten years ago, even I'm not sure I want to be on any bike from even five years ago
1: yeah not totally yeah I guess the sport is the sport is newer, it's booming, so more resources to develop it associations make better trails
0: good time to be a mountain biker yeah yeah
1: if you can find a bike
0: (laughs) fair point that's right if you can find a bike and it does look like we're gonna see a bit of a repeat of last season right that bikes are gonna be a bit scarce again by everybody i'm talking with in the industry it sounds like We're going to be dealing with that again. And on the one hand, you know, that's sort of too bad. And on the other hand, I'm like, well, I don't know. Apparently a lot of people are getting bikes and getting out there. And I'm actually kind of psyched about that part of it. So I think it's great. Let's talk about music and your edits. A
1: lot of hip hop. I didn't choose that part. it's just, um, the filmer said, yeah, we need to use hip hop, like gangsta hip hop. It will suit your riding well. It doesn't suit my personality at all. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) This was my question. Okay. And people liked it, so I kept on going.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so you personally, what are you most into from a music point of view? Are you not a big music guy?
1: So I'm so bad with with phones and computer, I managed to delete my entire iTunes library. (laughs) Okay. So I no longer have, have music. I don't even use Spotify. So I just go on YouTube and, and, and listen whatever. I think I have a CD in the car. I have Lady Gaga, Rihanna, Drake, and The Weeknd, maybe. And that's all I have.
0: And then you just listen to those four because you have no access to...
1: Yeah, because I don't have the time to, to download music and, and, and Spotify. My girlfriend has an account. She did visits at... Um, And so I really struggle finding music because I'm, you know, I'm left behind. I don't even know who does what anymore. So all I hear is the stuff that you can see, you know, on social media when someone does a video and uh, that kind of stuff.
0: Okay, so wait a second. Your current music collection is Lady Gaga, Rihanna,
1: Drake, and The Weeknd? That's what I have in the car, yeah. (laughs) Okay. I think the Drake CD has been on for... For at least six months, I really,
0: really feel though like now you kind of almost owe us an edit to a Lady Gaga track.
1: If it was up to me, I'll do it. okay, but I feel like I feel like i I will upset too many sponsors i have to, I have to keep it cool
0: uh all right, well, I'll see if I can somehow make this happen, but I'm just trying to think what lady Gaga track if you had to pick one Lady Gaga track.
1: Oh, I don't even know the names of the song. Though. Okay. Yeah, I this just, is- I just, it just plays on the background and I don't really pay attention. But my, uh, my first Instagram reel, which was uh, this new format where you can pick up a song, the song I picked up, everyone was like, what is that thing? It's so bad. And me, I was like, Oh, I thought it was pretty cool. So now, now I get my girlfriend to prove, to prove the stuff I use. Make sure it's not, it's not too bad.
0: Maybe, would you mind conveying to her this idea that we think one of your next edits needs to be to a Lady Gaga track? Yeah. If she's into the idea, then we might start getting a little bit of traction here, maybe?
1: We'll, we'll see. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll see. see. I, got, I got to take a part of idea.
0: Okay. By the way, you mentioned a while back you were talking about Las Vegas, and I was going to ask, if you were headed to Las Vegas and you had to gamble... What game would you play
1: so I've been to Vegas three times okay for interbike I've never played one single sense in in the, in the game it's It's not my thing
0: not a gambler I,
1: no, I'm not a gambler. I only play when I know i'm gonna win <laughs> <laughs> So you're a cheater well <laughs> if if i was gamb- if I was playing in in Vegas. If you see me play, you should wonder how, how accurate are the results?
0: <laughs> okay. Okay. Got it. All right. So yeah, if I ever find myself in a poker game with you, I should worry that something's maybe fixed or.
1: Well, that's because I'd be really confident I'm going to win. <laughs> okay. No, I don't, I don't play any games like that. Cause I, I just hate wasting money. And to me it's like I, I don't know the, the rules well enough of, of this game, but anything that's luck, I just I just can't do it. Even ten dollars that's like I like to play when when there's skills and you know knowledge involved and, and that kind of stuff. If it's those games where you've got no control, I just it's not for me.
0: Calculated, as you've already told us. You like cal- you like calculated, which is still come on. This is a little hilarious because if anybody's actually watched your edits, calculated is probably not the first word that would often be used to describe what they're seeing. So there is a bit of an irony here.
1: Yeah, but I, th- I think like if you look at all the pro mountain biker, like like the way I explain stuff, the way I approach stuff, make me look calculated. If you know what I mean. Compared to Johan, for example. I look more calculate I look more calculated than he does the crash he had yesterday it's not because it wasn't calculated. it was like you know bad timing like it just went slightly too deep, and you have to be so precise it's I put that on bad luck, you know he's calculated he knows what he's doing, but overall i I think more than he does way he goes more with the flow Where me, I goes more with, you know, experience and physics and, you know, like controlling every single parameter I can. And then if the math makes sense, I go for it.
0: And this is why you said earlier, it's like, you're basically upset with yourself if and when you crash, because everything has been sort of mapped out and so a crash just means that should absolutely not have happened.
1: Exactly. And you and you yesterday was upset too, because he, he knew right away what he had done wrong. He's like, I didn't feel it; Should not have gone. I was getting cold. I was getting hungry. I was no longer in the, in the vibe to, to do it. And I went too fast. I didn't think I just went for it. And he, you know, he could. He could analyze, and he was upset because he knew that he had made a mistake.
0: And what you guys are doing, these mistakes can be slightly consequential.
1: Yeah, no, he, he got he got lucky, and that was a, a wake-up call. That you know, it can happen even on something you've you've already done.
0: So, since you are so calculated, let's talk a little bit about when you are showing up to a new spot and checking out some line choice options and given that a lot of the lines that we do see in your edits are really creative looking lines walk us through that process for you i guess how you are seeing or reading the terrain and the line choices
1: well when it's on a trail i ride the trail i usually you know ride below the speed i can do and whenever there's some things that either you just see it on the side or you ride like a roller and you're like, huh, maybe I could actually, if I can generate enough speed, maybe I can gap. Or oh, so the first case scenario, second case scenario is when something doesn't make sense on the trail. how can I do so it flows better? And, and then it's like looking around the trail. that happens where well, you got. Mostly to stop and look, but sometimes I'll see, you know, rock on the side and I'd be like, well, actually you could write on it or, or jump off it or, or whatever it is. And it, it comes because I've made a living out of finding creative lines. I guess I pay extra attention. So whenever I write something, wherever it is, I pay extra attention. Okay. What could be cool to write? And I like
0: this notion. I mean, you said that you are typically often or all the time trying to ride below your actual limit.
1: Yeah, I enjoy it more. I don't like, I don't like pushing to the limits. No, today, today I went with my friend, he had never ridden the trail. And so I rode, you know, more conservative and, and the last time I'd ridden the trail was actually with you and we went really fast today, riding slower. Add more fun, you know, because I feel like I'm going at a speed where I'm not going to crash. Where if somehow there is a tree on the way, I can stop. If there is, you know, something on the trail, I can avoid it and react. Whereas when you're right to the limits, you just don't have the time anymore.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, when you were saying I was never the fastest, it's like, well, in When you talk to World Cup downhill riders, it's a bit like if you're not at the limit, you might come in 40th. Like you just have to do that or you're not even in the game. And it sounds like that doesn't quite square with how you like to approach riding stuff, even gnarly stuff on a bike.
1: Yeah, because what I do is, it's not about the timing, it's about the image. And what people appreciate as well is, being, you know, smooth, precise and stylish. And for that, you cannot be at the limit. You know, if you are at the limit, it's a cool style, but it's not my style. So then that, that on some, on some place I'll go to the limit when the risks are, are pretty low. So, you know, let's say on a low me trade, well, if you crash, it's, it's not bad. That's one thing, but like doing the feature I do and the gaps I do, you cannot be at the limit. You know, so sometimes you are at the limit on the run out because of the consequence of the gap where you pick up so much speed that you end up being at the limit. And that's, that's a different thing. But then, yeah, that's basically it.
0: Let's talk about propane. New relationship. Tell us a little bit about how that came to be and why you feel like they were a good fit for you
1: yeah so basically i wanted to change frame sponsors just because biking is my hobby and i wanted something new something fresh something exciting and uh, you know that feeling when you get a new pair of ski and and you pick up what you think is best for you well i wanted the same right where you just like ride the bike that I want to be riding. I was looking for a brand that has, you know, don't need bike, free bike, enduro bike, trail bike. That's one requirement. And the second requirement was bikes that fits me and bikes I want to ride. And uh, I actually have a frame right there. And so they've got mullet bikes, which is really important for me. I do ride better when I ride on a mullet, I just have more space. It fits me better. And uh and so they have the spin drift and the new Daniel bike and the e-bike which are mullets. And yeah, so it just it just made sense and we've been in touch. We had uh, a friend in common that made the relationship a bit easier. It went really well. Like the guy I deal with is, is really good. He's you know very viable, which is extremely important, especially for for a top sponsor like that, it's important to be able to have a point of contact that's reliable because uh, at the end of the day, it's business. You know, you need to have someone that you can talk to. And yeah, things went well. Uh, I got, the, I got the, the, the bikes, obviously, and I've been really happy with it.
0: So on the mullet topic, if you weren't allowed to ride a mullet and had to go 27.5 or 29.
1: I would go... 27.5 on the free ride and on the bike and I'll go one enduro 27.5 and one enduro 29 and trail bike 29. Okay. That's a hell, that's a hell of a bike quiver. The more travel, the more clearance you need between your butts and the, and the rear wheel. Why is the more tra- travel is because you know, with a Ferrari bike or a bike, you ride usually steeper, gnarlier trail, which is why you want more clearance.
0: So, okay, I'm trying to, how many bikes was that? If you couldn't have a mullet bike and you just lined out all these, did you just say it was like six bikes? Basically, yeah. Okay.
1: That's, that's me as a sponsored rider. Would I buy six bikes if I wasn't sponsored? I mean, if money was not a problem, probably.
0: <laughs> you like your bike quiver. <laughs> And and so, but now, but you can ride a mullet. And so now you can pretty comfortably drop that number from six
1: to three or four. True. I still have. You don't want to? Well, I have more bikes than I actually need. Ah. But it's also, you know, so I can get all the colors, all the models. But so right now, I'm going to be building a 14012 bike which realistically I don't really need because I have the 160 enduro bike. So I have a 160, 170, uh, 29er. I have the e-bike that I need to build. I have a second identical enduro bike, but that's set up as a mullet, which so far I use the most. I have a spin drift, which is a free ride bike as a mullet, which I need to build as well, which I'm going to build today. And then I've got a spin drift slash mini Daniel bike. That's going to be a mullet. And then I'm going to be receiving a Daniel bike. That's that's a mullet. So you're looking at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven bikes. Eight with a dodge jumper bike, which I don't really use much. And uh, and then I've got a road bike, which propane, propane doesn't make a road bike. But I, I still have a cube from last year. And I was going to change it, but I don't, I don't use it enough.
0: And okay. So you find no downsides to the mullet setup.
1: There is, there is a little downside. I think on the technical appeal, 29er wheel just rides better. 29er wheel carries more speed, but the amount of fun and the forgiveness of a mullet, it's not that the bike forgives more is that because you get more space between your butt and the rear wheel, you can correct more when you make a mistake. But today I rode, I rode a trail that I rode on the Mullet and on the 29er. I'm not necessarily faster. And on that specific trail, I had a lot of fun on the 29er because it was not super gnarly. You know, it's like a, a good Lomer, it was good. But if I have to push to my limit, I'm a better right ride on that. Interesting.
0: Let's talk a bit about your plans for 2021. I really, really, really don't want to jinx anything here, but I'm starting to feel like maybe this COVID thing is going to be less of a thing. I'm feeling I'm feeling good about this. So assuming that's true, and assuming I didn't just jinx everything, have you been starting to plot out? This year or you've been reluctant to do that yet?
1: No, I've been I've been really busy at home and until travel come back fully to normal, I'm not willing to travel. Mostly because I'm so happy at home. I lo- like I love my place. You know I moved into a place where that was my dream place, being squamish. I mean being the sea to sky corridor. That's where if you could tell me if you could be one place in the world. Only one, that'll be it. And so I worked so hard to get there, and I just bought a new house, and I'm in basically the best location. Well, it sucks to have a nice house like that when you can't have any any guests. <laughs> but uh, you know, I feel like I'm paying for a, a big venue, but I can't host a party. <laughs> Fair. So so we kind of so it's just my girlfriend and I, and, and we we're pretty bored right now. But no, we're in the best place. And I love that so much. Yeah. I just like, don't really want to travel anywhere, at least until uh, it comes back to, to normal. And then obviously I'm going to be excited again, you know, to go to Utah, to go to Sedona, go to Mexico, uh, to abandoning races and stuff. And, but like BC is, is where I've always wanted to live. And so I don't complain about, obviously, you know, I complain about COVID like everybody else. But the fact that I can't travel for work hasn't been an issue to me.
0: Yeah. If you got to be stuck in a spot.
1: May as well be this one. Yeah.
0: Last question. Possibly the hardest question. But we like to ask on this podcast if you happen to have a big idea. And this could be anything. And you know, it could be something that you find yourself just thinking about late at night. Could be anything. What's your big idea?
1: So I'm going to be a boring guest. Okay. But I haven't really... I haven't put enough thoughts into it. But there's some stuff where, you know, I'm like pretty big into, you know, recycling and limiting waste. I'm trying to be a minimalist. Hmm. Except for your bike quiver. True. To- <laughs> But I believe you can be minimalist in some ways and have a lot of stuff when it really matters to you. Uh-huh. Yes. Or when yes. it doesn't. Yes. Agreed. When it doesn't. So I don't buy much stuff. Like I don't buy anything really. I'm lucky that you know, sponsor, pay out and stuff, but now we try to buy really good stuff so we don't have to buy again. So like an example, like a Vitamix, I bought a Vitamix and until it breaks, if it ever breaks, because that's the idea, right? The idea that it never breaks, I won't have to change it. Barbecue, like I do have a, a partnership with Traeger Grill, but as a customer, their product is so dying. Like it's so solid. It's not going to wear out. I had one for two years before. I just got a new one because I sold the old one with my, with my place. When the the buyer came by, they saw the barbecue. They wanted to include it in the deal (laughs)
0: because they
1: liked it. So I had to get a new one. But mine was two years old, outside in the rain, six months a year, and still looked brand new. And uh, so now we're focusing on getting, you know, really good products that we don't have to, to change. And the idea behind that is to, to minimize the impact, uh, we have on the planet. So yes, you know, you get got a lot of bikes and obviously I go through a lot of tires and, and parts and stuff like that, but we're really trying to our best to really limit our impact on the planet. So I will never take, takeaway food or, uh, take away coffee cup before COVID, obviously with COVID, it's changed everything, but I was working with camelback to help educate and spread like a positive message about, you know, getting one of those reusable cups. And I saw your other one, actually, and use that instead of of plastic cups. And, and so, you know, I'm really trying to, to promote that message and ourselves, we, you know, I try to not drive for nothing. I try to I have to go to Whistler to pick up a battery for the bike actually. But and I haven't been in three weeks because it hasn't been like urgent. So I'm trying to because I'm gonna be driving, I'm gonna have an impact. You know, it's gonna be like the fuel, the wear of the car and everything. So I'm trying to time everything. So you know, I can go and see my content. I can go and get that battery. And I'm gonna ski as well. So basically, I'm trying to do one trip to do everything, and that way I can limit, you know, how much driving I'm gonna do. And because uh, technically it's four trips, right? If I was not considering it, I'll go ski, and then the other day is like, oh man, well, I need to give my paper to the contents. Another trip, like, so I'm really trying to be to be really good about that. And so yeah, my big idea is that it has nothing with like political view, whether people believe or not in uh, climate change, for example, or, you know, whatever other thing it's, it's about like, you can limit the impact you put on the planet without, you know, losing happiness or freedom because you can still do all the stuff that that you like, just, just do it a, a way where you limit as much as possible, the impact on, uh, on our planet.
0: Limit impacts, practice minimalism in most things, but in maybe one or two things where you are absolutely the most passionate, maybe there you pick your spot to go a little maximalist.
1: Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so practice, practice minimalism in general on the stuff you don't, on the stuff that don't make, don't make you super happy, you know, but the stuff that do make you happy, treat yourself. Yeah. I like this. But on the other stuff, when I see garages of people and there's stuff that they're never going to use, you know, and like with, with products, like, you know, something like biking, as we mentioned, the bike have progressed a lot. It's difficult to buy a bike that's still going to be up to date in five years. Because it's, evolving so far, but an example, I bought some power tools. I had, I first, I bought the cheap brand because I was like, I'm never going to use it. So I bought like the own brand of, um, of whatever supplies store, like the cheapest. Stuff. And I was disappointing with the product, even though I use them very little, but obviously it's half the price of Dewalt or Milwaukee or whatever. And so this year I was like, you know what? I'm gonna buy everything, everything good. But first of all, I'd, i a better experience with the product because they're better, and uh, I'm gonna keep them, you know, forever.
0: I like it. Hey, man, this has been really fun. Really appreciate the time, and you've got great perspectives on a whole bunch of stuff. I still just love the fact about how much we talked about how calculating you are because. I want to get off this conversation and then go back and watch some of your edits again <laughs> and just think. <laughs> Calculated, not the first word that comes to mind. Maybe more like wild, impressive uh, is kind of what comes to mind. But I appreciate you walking us through how some of the wild, impressive looking stuff is probably made possible via a whole lot of calculation.
1: Well, thanks for your time.
0: Yeah. This was fun, and you know, I know you're happy in Squamish right now. But you know, when the time is right, it would be fun to get you out here.
1: I want to go to Colorado. I've I've heard heard great things. I've I've seen, you know, photos, videos, and and I want to check it out.
0: Okay, well, you've got a standing invitation, and uh, we'll we'll make that happen. And you know, we could we could ride bikes or do a backcountry ski tour, listening to some Lady Gaga. You know, just the options are endless here. So, you know, we're, we're all good. Awesome. So. <laughs> all right, man. I'll let you go. We'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Well, that's it for this edition of Bikes and Big Ideas. Thanks to Ramey for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. From all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, please take good care of yourself and everybody else. And we will talk to you again real soon.